Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. You heard John pray for the situation in, in Israel and in Gaza. And, and the reality is, is there are no simple solutions. There are none. Right? To say that there's one solution to the problem, is, it misunderstands the problem. But what I've noticed as a pastor is anytime something happens in the world, I often get texts from folks from you know, past ministry experiences all over. And usually what the texts have to do with is they heard another pastor say, this is the world coming to an end. Or they heard another pastor say this, is that a faithful response? And so this week, as usual, my, my phone was blowing up. And so I thought it would be helpful for me to preach this week and next week about a couple of things that I've heard that I think deserve attention and what I would say, correction. Now, while things are complex in Israel right now, some things are always true for the believer. And what is always true for the believer is that we know from the beginning of humanity We don't have to get past Cain and Abel. Humanity has found ourselves in cycles of violence. We've been toward violence. And God's definitive answer for that, his final answer was to send his son and turn that violence on himself. The final answer for violence for all Christians is that Jesus himself absorbs it in his body and puts an end to that. And there is a day coming, praise God, we recite it every week in the creed and we sing about it. When that trumpet sounds, there is a day coming when there will be no more violence. So God has a final permanent solution to that. And so when you talk about violence, you must always keep at the forefront. There is a solution. And that is that God himself absorbs it. But like I said, I don't, I don't presume to be able to speak completely on this. And, and truth be told, it took me a long time to prepare the sermon for this week because you can ask my roommates, I don't want to talk about it. This is a difficult topic. And you can say the wrong thing. But I decided, you know, that fear should not ever keep me from preaching on something. And I don't have to know all the answers. I think the fear was I don't have all the answers. And I don't have to. Instead, what I can do is address the two alarming trends that I have seen in the wake of the unholy attack by Hamas on Israel. And the two trends that I have seen that are anti-Christian is the first one, the rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric in many places around the world, including in many Christian places, And the second is a pro-Israel language devoid of any caveats as if violence is the solution always to violence. And so this week what I'm going to address is the anti-Semitic rhetoric that I see pop up in Christian spaces. Next week we will talk about God's response and how he as his people who calls us to bid ourselves to come and die, another response to that. But for this week, in order for us to be faithful, I want to talk about the anti-Jewish rhetoric that has unfortunately, because of scholarship in the past, seeped into our churches. And so the text that I want to look at today is a very famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you've been in church for any number of years, there's a chance you've heard this taught, and I'm willing to bet perhaps you've heard it taught what I would argue is incorrectly. And this morning, my hope is is to ground the Pharisees in their actual historical context, who they actually were, rather than the stereotypes that you tend to hear, And in doing so, we'll see what Jesus has to say not only about salvation, but the beautiful things that he believes about his brothers and sisters. So again, I'm not a geopolitical expert. I'm not going to pretend to be. I'm watching the news like you all. I'm being faithful. I'm checking the sources. But I am a theologian. That is what I am. And so to that end, I want us to think well about the gospel and the implications for us today. 
And so we'll turn to Luke 18, 9 to 14 for the parable of of the tax collector and the Pharisee. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for preserving this word and preserving this beautiful truth. Would you allow me this morning to allow my words to be beautiful, true, and right? May they first and foremost honor you, and may they also honor your image bearers. I ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Stereotypes, they make for good entertainment and poignant truths. Most comedians would not be able to do their job without stereotypes. It's what helps them get to a punchline. And Jane Austen made a killing, doubt it, but should have made a killing on Pride and Prejudice. I doubt she's getting royalties for all the movies we've made. But Pride and Prejudice is, is a brilliant book because it takes stereotypes. You expect the very wealthy Mr. Darcy to be the proud one and the humble origins of Elizabeth for her to be humble, but instead she's the proud one. And as the story unfolds through the hilarity of their romance, you realize Jane Austen's using stereotypes and flipping them upside down. In storytelling, stereotypes are clever and they're very effective. However, in real life, stereotypes tend to wound and even mislead. I bet many of you in here have been brought under stereotypes and you thought to yourself, that's really painful. The number of blonde jokes I heard growing up, I was like, is this a thing that we tell 11-year-old blonde girls? Like, that they're going to be stupid because of the color of their hair? Right? Chances are you've heard stereotypes. In the case of Pharisees, the stereotypes not only lead to misunderstanding of the scriptures, But we have seen the data that what happens is people take the stereotypes of the Pharisees and they extrapolate it out on top of the entire Jewish people, which has often led to not only hate speech, but violence against the Jewish people. People have taken the exact rhetoric of the New Testament and applied it to Jewish people for harm and mistreatment throughout history. We saw this very clearly with Hitler and the invectives in the Pharisees In Matthew 23 in the Bible, he applied them to not Pharisees, because they're no longer Pharisees in the 1900s, but he applied them to all Jewish men, women, and children as justification for genocide. And sadly, today, the same anti-Pharisaic rhetoric in the Bible and stereotypes are often hurled at Jewish men, women, and children today. This should never be, and certainly not from God's people. So before we can jump into our parable... I have to help dispel some of the misunderstandings about Pharisees and properly define them. I had one class in grad school that was entirely Pharisees. I spent five days learning about Pharisees, and I thought to myself, how can there be five days, eight hours a day of lecture on Pharisees? There can be, and it was awesome. And so when I tell you I've worked for this sermon, it was thousands of pages of ancient reading. So I'm excited to distill all those thousands of pages into a 30-minute sermon for y'all. 
But I am excited because I had to correct my understanding of the Pharisees and things that I had said over the years. I have regrets about things that I've said over the years. And not only once we get the Pharisees right, then we can plop them back into this parable and see how Jesus is doing this with the, with the stereotypes. He's flipping them on his head. I think Jane Austen learned some things from Jesus. And we'll see why as we go. So, who are the Pharisees? Well, if you Google them, if you leave here right now and you pull your phone out, your computer or your iPad, and you just say, who are the Pharisees? What you will find are the stereotypes of hyper-judgmental, hypocritical enemies of Jesus. I know, because I did this. I Googled it. So in their articles um, about Pharisees, when you Google it, you'll hear all kinds of really negative things come up. There was a book that we read, a big red book that just said Pharisees. And in one chapter, two women, Susanna Herschel and Deborah Forger, went and looked at all the ways that Pharisees show up in pop culture. And they said in the late 1800s in Germany, you could order a drink called the Pharisee. And what the drink was is it looked like a cappuccino, but it was actually half coffee, half rum with whipped cream over the top. And the point was is you could get drunk in the middle of the day and it looks like you're drinking a cappuccino, but really you're drinking rum. We want a hypocritical drink. Let's name it a Pharisee. Late 1800s Germany. Any historians in the room knows what happens not too long after that. On the Desiring God website, if you just Google Pharisee, the first article that pops up is The Making of a Modern Pharisee. And the author claims without any substantiation, they don't cite anything, Pharisees are legalists, but not the newborn kind. They have all the same fears about grace, but they have coated their insecurities with accumulating knowledge, morality, and religion. They're legalists who are puffed up. Chances are this is what you've heard. Desiring God's not alone. I'll pick on Gospel Coalition too. Gospel Coalition, you type in Pharisee. First article is the hypocrisy of Pharisee phobia. And again, without corroboration, the author says the Pharisees could have been labeled sinner-phobic, blind to their own depravity. It wasn't uncommon for them to cast the first stones at others. Now that phrase there, it wasn't uncommon to cast the first stones, that is patently false, and I will, I will explain why. But sadly, the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, they're, they're easy to pick on because they're the first that popped up, but that's just because they figured out SEO marketing really well. They're not alone. This is what you will see in most scholarship today. We just assume we know who the Pharisees are. And sadly, these sentiments can be traced to anti-Jewish rhetoric born out of Europe, Martin Luther, and used by Hitler and made popular. People just assume the Pharisees are bad guys. Puffed up legal. This is just the assumption that we carry with us. So did Jesus come up against the Pharisees? Yes, of course he did. We see it in the scriptures. But does that make them bad guys, enemies, or hostile murderers? No, no. So you may be asking yourself, well, if they're not those things, then, then who are they? Well, really broadly, one of the things you have to understand about the Pharisees is they don't, they don't count for all Jewish people. In the first century, living in Jerusalem, you have Rome, which is dominating the landscape. Rome is in charge, and they are oppressive. But because the temple is in Jerusalem, they allow there to be some sort of temple state there where Jewish people can rule and reign, as long as they ultimately obey Herod and don't get out of hand. Don't do things like claim you're the Messiah and get the crowds to follow you. Stuff like that. Well, during that day, there were four big groups of Jewish people. You had the Essenes, and those were the fundamentalists. They didn't play nice with others. They thought everybody else were a bunch of sinners, so they went off by themselves by the Dead Sea and said, we don't play with them. So that's the Essenes, strict rule followers. You have the Sadducees. Those are the hoity-toity Rockefellers. They had the money. They had all the real power. Nobody liked them. Go figure. Then you have the Zealots. They were the ones that wanted to overthrow Rome. A handful of Jewish folks with Sicari knives think they can overthrow Rome. Good luck. They didn't make it very far. And then you have the Pharisees who get picked on the most. 
And our Pharisees are actually lay leaders. They have no real power. So you have the Pharisees. And one of the reasons why people assume the Pharisees were judgmental is because they were very strict and dedicated in their obedience to the Jewish law. They were especially, from their writings, concerned about food, tithing, and hand washing. But strictness does not mean judgmental. Many of y'all know very obedient Christians who are not judgmental. But they care about their own faithfulness, and so they observe what they believe God is calling them to do. It doesn't mean they're judging you. They might be the most gracious people you also know. And despite their strictness, they actually tried to make the law doable for the average Jewish person. You have 613 laws in the Old Testament, things that say don't work on the Sabbath. Well, how is the average Jewish person supposed to get by? How are they supposed to cook their meals? How are they supposed to do these things? So the Pharisees wrote about it. They said, hey, we got ways to be faithful, but also allow you to cook your meals. And so Josephus writes, listen, the Pharisees were lenient in their punishments, not the first to cast stones, and very popular. He actually doesn't like the Pharisees. Josephus, famous historian, he doesn't actually care for them because he's uppity. He thinks of himself as kind of at the top. And again, the Sadducees are at the top. But he writes about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And this is what he says. He says, concerning the matter, these two parties have controversies and serious differences. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they don't get along. Now, the Sadducees have the confidence of the wealthy alone, but no following among the populace. The average Joe's not following the Sadducees, but the Pharisees have the support of the masses. Josephus is alive during this time, and he, they, he says they're extremely popular. Why would hyper-judgmental, hyper-critical, hyper-observant you know, people be popular? We know those people. Do you like them? Don't answer that. But we know those people. Not only does Josephus comment on their leniency, the Essenes don't like them, because, again, the Essenes are like the, they are the ones that have pulled away. Try to, I don't want to make fun of the Amish, but think of how the Amish have pulled away from society because they feel like that's what's best to be adherent to what they believe is the good life. Now imagine it's the Amish plus they have a little bit of attitude. That's the Essenes, okay? We have lots of writings. They threw shade all the time. The Essenes writing about the Pharisees says this, that we have a spirit of zeal against the Pharisees because they are seeker of smooth things. And that phrase, seeker of smooth things, is because they smooth out the law to make it easier to obey. The Essenes are like, do it the harder way. And the Pharisees go, look, that's just not feasible for the average Jewish person. So we're trying to make the law easier for the average Jewish person to be faithful to it. In other words, the Pharisees were strictly obedient because of their genuine faithfulness, but they interpreted the Bible in ways to make it doable for the average Jewish person living in Jerusalem. Scott McKnight, who has studied this at great length and written about it extensively, my professor, always says you want the Pharisees to be your neighbor. They were good people. They made the law easier, not harder, and they were beloved by the masses. And another misunderstanding about the Pharisees is we often predict them as if they had all this power and they were conspiring against Jesus to have Jesus murdered, but the reality is they had almost no real power, just influence over the populace. They were popular, but there's nothing they could do about it. It's like saying, you know the most popular evangelical pastor, but he doesn't have the power of the Pope. He can be influential, but he can't do anything. He can't come kick you out of your church. He doesn't wield power. And so it's misleading to say that the Pharisees killed Jesus because if you pay attention, during the Passion Week, they disappear. And it's the religious leaders at the top who have real power, along with the Romans, who killed Jesus. Now, do they have real disagreement? Yes. Does it say they handed him, they attempted to hand him over to the leaders? Yes. I'm not saying the Pharisees didn't have problems, but I'm saying they are not this like nitty-gritty powerful team of people trying to take down Jesus. 
So for those of you who read your Bible, I know what you're thinking in the back of your head. Mm, Matthew 23 is pretty strong language. That's where we get the whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. And you're right. In that passage, Jesus hurls invectives at the Pharisees. Yes, you are absolutely correct. But rather than seeing these two entities, Pharisees and Jesus, as diametrically opposed, we should actually see them as two parties competing for the same group of people. If you pay attention to how often Jesus, Pharisees, and the crowds show up, you will realize this is less about actual enemies vying for power and more about saying Jesus believes he knows the way to walk with Yahweh, and so do the Pharisees. And he's the new guy, and they're worried that he's going to cause Israel to turn away. Now, were they wrong? Of course they were. And if you're ever in doubt, follow Jesus, right? That should be your life motto. But you need to think of it less as enemies hoping to harm each other and more as like political rhetoric. You guys know how annoying it is when let's pick the Democrats and they're running against each other in the primaries and they're like, they're the worst. They'll ruin the whole country. But then someone actually wins the election and they're like, they're the best. Vote for them. They're going to lead our country because they want to win the vote of the masses. This is what's happening here. They're not actual enemies. They're frenemies. They want the same thing. They just disagree on how to do it. And what happens is pastors like myself pit Jesus and Christianity over here against Pharisees and Judaism, but those misunderstand the conversations that they're having. Yinger, a a scholar on this, he says, Jesus was not criticizing the Pharisees for adhering to Judaism and instead proposing Christianity. He's, he's, He's criticizing their way of practicing Judaism and proposing instead his way. Yes, you do a lot of things faithfully. In fact, we hear him say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not get in. But he's like, but you're missing one key thing. That's what he's saying to them. Follow me as I am the son of God. They differed in their understanding of faithfulness, but they're not enemies. You see how much Jesus loves them later on in the scriptures. Amy Levine is a brilliant Jewish scholar, and she realized so much of what Christians say about Judaism is incorrect. And rather than hurling anger back at them, she said, why don't we come together and study together? And so she now studies with Christian scholars, and they both open each other's eyes to things that they haven't seen before. Because so many Christians forget that we started out as a faith of Judaism, and out of that was born Christianity, and it doesn't mean we throw away our understanding. And so Amy Jill talks about this, and so she says, hey, I want to remind you of something about how rhetoric works in the ancient world. It's very different than today. And she says, when Jesus hurls these invectives against the Pharisee, the rhetoric, however nasty, is still internal. You're looking into an intra-family conversation. And don't you use some of the harshest language for your family? You wouldn't believe the things I call my brother that I wouldn't call someone else because he knows I love him. But I want you to think about it like this. You have your children, people that you really care deeply about. And you have another, like maybe it's you and maybe it's like you're one set of grandparents and there's another set of grandparents and you both love the kids and you want what's best for them but you're diametrically opposed on one thing. And now you're telling each other about it. Would that not get a little chippy? Hey, I don't want the kids to go the wrong way. Well, I don't want the kids to go the wrong way. Yeah, but your way is not good. No, your way is not good. Okay, now that's a little bit more of what's happening in these conversations. It's an intra-family conversation. And perhaps the biggest misunderstanding about Pharisees and Jewish people in general is Christians wrongly say Judaism is a faith of works and Christianity is a faith of grace. This is patently false. If you read the writings of the Jewish people, 
they talk about grace as much as Christians do. It is by grace that God built a covenant with us. Now, a response to that grace is walking faithfully. But it was by grace that God made a covenant with us in Israel. And then after he makes the covenant, then he gives us the law. It was always grace that brought us in the covenant, and they talk about it as much as we talk about grace. And so we obey as a gracious response to what God has done for us. It's almost as if they say, because you love me, I will obey you, just like Jesus tells us. If you ask Moses, was the covenant about works or was it by grace? He'd say, no, the covenant was about grace, but we respond to that gracious gift with obedience and walking with him. This is all over the Jewish writings. And yet you'll still hear pastors say, oh, Judaism is about works. But if you talk to a Jewish person, they go, no, it's not. God graciously chose us. So Amy Gillivine, she says, look, despite historical and exegetical advances, we now have all this evidence about what the Jewish faith actually believes and teaches and preaches. Despite all of that, preaching and teaching throughout the Christian world continues to depict Pharisees as xenophobic, self-righteous, elitist, legalistic, money-loving, judgmental, unseeing hypocrites. And then that gets extrapolated onto Jewish people in general, which then leads to anti-Jewish rhetoric and hate. That's not who the Pharisees were. They were popular lay leaders in Jerusalem who sought to make the Bible doable. They, they believed because of the gracious gift of God in their lives, they could respond with strict obedience because that's what faithful people do. They believed in an afterlife. They knew what they thought was the way to make Israel faithful to God. And listen, they missed it. When God's boy shows up on the scene, you follow him. They missed it. There's no doubt about it. But they are not these horrible people that we often set up as strawmen to just punch at. I think sometimes to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Jesus does show up and he disagrees with them vehemently and he calls them on the carpet for it. But when you get to the end of Matthew 23 where he has his harshest language for them, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a mother hen. If you see anything other than great love from Jesus toward the Pharisees, you're misunderstanding your Bible. And this parable that we're going to jump into now shows you that if you actually get the Pharisees right, you see that Jesus understands that they are the good guys. So let's turn to our parable. When you think about Jesus, he often chooses characters and settings and then turns them upside down. It's why his teaching is so effective. Think about the Good Samaritan. It's not the religious leaders who helps him. It's the Samaritan, and that bothers everybody, right? It's not the rich man who sees glory. It's Lazarus, the poor man who sees glory. So we should expect a little bit of a reversal in this parable. So if we're going to get this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector situated correctly, we have to understand what Jesus is doing when he subverts it that makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't work. This parable doesn't work if the Pharisees are smug, self-righteous people already. Like, he's like, hey, I want to tell you a story about the Pharisees. Boo, they did bad things. Of course they did. All right, go in peace. Yeah, no. His parables always go, ugh, to you, and you go, ugh. You're talking about me, aren't you? Yeah. So if we get them right, then this parable actually works. You have to remember, Jesus uses parables to tell truths in these unexpected way. It's indirect communication that finds a way to come through the back window. This is what C.S. Lewis says, that Jesus was so brilliant because you think Like you're protecting your heart with your mind. We're always doing that. But stories have a way of sneaking past those watchful guardians. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, are you talking about me? I thought you were just telling a story. There was a point to this story. This is what Jesus constantly does. So let's get the setting right. 
Pharisees come onto the scene in Jesus' story. He says, let me tell you a story about these two men. There's a Pharisee. You should hear light applause. Yay. And then there was a tax collector. And that's when you should hear booing and hissing. We don't like tax collectors. Now, the way Christians have historically taught this, I looked it up. I looked up a ton of sermons on it. They're like, the Pharisees, self-righteous, smug, they're the worst. The tax collector, man, this guy's just bad. He's just down on his luck, you know. He's just like a poor sinner like the rest of us. No, he's not. Okay, let me tell you who the tax collectors are. They were men who were Jewish by birth. But they worked on behalf of the oppressors. They worked on behalf of Rome to heavily tax their Jewish kinfolk. And they lie and they stole all the time. They're known for coming to a widow and saying, hey, you owe Rome 100 bucks. But really she owed Rome 30. And you know what he did with the 70? Slid that thing right in his pocket. That's who the tax collector He's not some Joe Schmo who's down on his luck. No, they were thieves and they were dishonest and they were despised by the Jewish people. Because they worked on behalf of oppressive Rome. The the writing says they had no civic rights and they were shunned by any respectable person. It's why it's scandalous that Jesus eats with them. These are the bad guys. One One of the scholars says attitudes toward tax collectors and especially toll collectors were quite negative. They were notorious for dishonesty. And in the Mishnah, which is Jewish writings, they categorized tax collectors along with murderers and robbers. Murderers robbers, tax collectors. And it says, those are the three types of people you don't have to be honest to. You need to be honest to everybody, but since they're gonna lie to you and harm you, you can lie to a murderer, a robber, and you can lie to a tax collector because they're lying to you. This is what it says. So for the Pharisee, he's Mr. Rogers. And for the tax collector, Bernie Madoff. That's the story. And we wanna switch those, and that's not what's gonna get us to the punchline of of the parable. So we get to the Pharisee's prayer. Admittedly, at first glance, it does smell like self-righteousness. You're like, really? He's sitting there being like, thank God I'm not like these other people. However, where Christians see self-righteousness, Jewish scholars see genuine gratitude. And the reason why is because they read their Old Testament. There's precedence for a prayer like this. In Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 15, God prescribes a prayer. You get done with the first fruits of the season, and you come to the temple to present your first fruits. And God says, this is how I want you to pray, okay? I want you to say these things to me. And the first half of the prayer is you talk about all God's grace toward you. So the first half of the prayer talks about how God rescues them out of Egypt. We once were a foreigner, foreigner and because of great power, God brings us out. He, he definitely, like, because of our ancestors, he heard us. He saw our humiliation, toil, and oppression. So he brought us out of Egypt, and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So look at your graciousness, God. You did this. You're the reason why I have this fruit. That's the first half of the prayer. Then the prayer breaks up, and there's commentary. And they say, okay, now give the fruit to the priest. And they say, okay, and the priest has this part. And they go, okay, now here's the second half of your prayer. Then you shall say to the Lord, before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred offerings from my house and I've given it to the Levites, the residents, the foreigners, the orphans, the widows. You hear it? Catch that? I've been good. I've been good. Just as you have committed. I've not violated or forgotten your commandments. I have not eaten anything when I was in mourning or removed any of it while ceremonially unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed you and have done everything you have commanded me. So look down on your holy place and bless me. Sounds self-righteous, doesn't it? God wrote that and said, say that back to me when you bring your first fruits. Don't worry, there's more examples. We have Psalm 17 where, again, these are the prayers of the people. This is what we've been teaching for the last nine weeks. This is how God wants you to respond to him. Psalm 17, Lord, I haven't been like those other men. Psalm 26, hey, Lord, vindicate me. 
I don't associate with deceitful men or consort with those who are dishonest. I hate the mob of evil men, and I don't associate with the wicked. I maintain a pure lifestyle so I can appear before your altar, Lord, and give you thanks. Ezekiel, Job, it goes on and on. We see this prayer of the Pharisee, and we go, mm, self-righteousness. But if we go back to the Old Testament, why does God preserve these prayers for us? God himself says to me, tell me you've been faithful. Now, here's the point. If you haven't been faithful, that prayer is going to work on you and go, I can't say that to you. And God's going to go, that's right. So we got work to do. Like, we need to repent. We need to do right. But we read into this prayer more than what is there. If the Pharisees are the good guys and the tax collectors are the bad guys and the prayer isn't really being called out for self-righteousness, then what is going on in this parable? I know that's what you want to know. And Luke tells us in the first sentence, What's going on in this parable is Jesus says, hey, I want to tell you about a man, and the line says, who looked down on others. That's what's going on in this parable. If parables are sent to surprise and provoke, then a Pharisee's disgust and a tax collector's remorse, this fits the bill perfectly. And Levine points this out. This would have been so effective in the first century. She says, neither Pharisee nor tax collector behaves in the manner that a first century Jewish audience would expect. Listeners would be genuinely surprised that a Pharisee would be dismissive of the tax collector in the community, and they would be surprised that a tax collector is even possible of repenting. Jesus takes Mr. Rogers and makes him go, ugh, we don't like that. And he takes the guy who's out there robbing all of the vulnerable people to just line his own pockets, and he's like, I messed up. And Jesus says, that's enough to be saved and to be justified. The genuine humility displayed by the tax collector shocks the listener, and the disgust of the Pharisee shocks the listener. It's both shocks that actually subvert this. I need to remind you, Jesus, through Luke, likes to use reversals. It's the Samaritan, not the temple representatives. It's the younger, foolish brother who comes home, not the older, faithful one. It's Lazarus, not the rich man. We should be surprised when the stereotypical good guy acts disgusted and the stereotypical bad guy receives justification. The point of this parable is not to say don't be self-righteous. The point of this parable is about the generous mercy of God and the humility that that should produce in all of us. That's what Luke 18 is teaching us. There is the generous mercy of God that a man who has spent his whole life robbing and harming his people can say to God, I'm sorry, and God says, that's enough. You are forgiven, and it's enough to, to make all of us should be going, I'm so glad God is like that. That's the point of this parable. And if, if we're being honest, in our most honest moments, we're a little bit like the Pharisee because Jonah's the same way too. And God's people don't always want God to be merciful to those we despise. We don't always want God to be merciful to those we despise. I get Jonah when he goes to Nineveh and he's like, man, I knew you were going to save them all. He's like, Jonah, buddy, don't I have the right to be merciful to whoever I want to be merciful to? That is the point of this parable. The first audience would not have liked the tax collector going away justified. And many of us would not like the idea of our enemies being justified by God's mercy too. There are people that have severely wronged and harmed, and for them to walk up and just say, hey, I'm sorry, and for them to receive the mercy of God, if in our more honest moments, there are people that might come to mind that we go, mm, I don't love that. I wish they'd suffer a little bit before they came. 
We're a lot more like Jonah than we realize, and we're way more like the Pharisee than the tax collector, if we're being honest. So what's our so what from this? The first thing is obvious. It's why I spent the first half talking about we need to be careful in the way we talk about people. This prolonged misunderstanding about the Pharisees and Christian scholarship continues to lead to anti-Semitism. We see it all the time. Jesus deeply loved the Pharisees. Despite his harshest criticism, he loved them. And if you read Acts, many Pharisees converted and followed Jesus. It was a Pharisee who buries Jesus in his tomb. He longs to gather them like a mother hen. Yes, Jesus hurled invectives at them, but rhetoric in the first century is not the same today. And if you think that you have the right to talk to people that way, it better be people that you deeply love in an internal conversation that you continue to hold on to and continue to minister to because otherwise you're misunderstanding what's happening in the Bible. We should talk about people as if they bear God's image. The second point of this is the mercy of God scandalizes us. That's the point of this parable. If the parables are supposed to be a gut punch, if the Pharisees are bad guys, there's no gut punch, right? But if the tax collector is truly a bad guy and the Pharisee is truly a good guy, then we don't really like the mercy of God and that's what's happening in this passage. If Mr. Rogers walked in here and acted all haughty, we'd be like, hmm, that's odd for our neighbor. He must just be having a bad day. But pick the person you despise who has really harmed the innocent and the vulnerable. And at a drop of a hat, he receives mercy, and God honors that mercy. Why is it easier for us to dismiss the arrogance than to receive the mercy of God when our whole lives have been determined by the mercy of God? God's mercy is big and generous. And that sometimes scandalizes us if we're honest. But it should lead us to my third point, which is humility looks good on everyone. If the major thrust of this parable is about the generous mercy of God, and the humility that it should produce in all of us, then we should be the first to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. I've been there. But for the grace of God, I would be there. If we are so arrogant that we think Pharisees are such awful people, we miss the point of this parable. If we can't humble ourselves to see it as it is. If we are so arrogant that we think we're saved, because you know what? We're the kind of people God likes to save. Then we've missed the point of this parable. The point of this parable is a reminder, but for the grace of God. And it should make us humble and grateful that God's mercy is big enough to include even me. The situation in Gaza is extremely complex. There is much more that could and should be said. And I will next week talk about how God's care for the vulnerable should impact our understanding of what we pray and hope for over there. Over 50% of Gaza is filled with children, and that should just crush everyone's heart. And so we'll talk about next week God's role of election for the sake of mission. But for this week, I shouldn't have to say this, and I don't believe that I'm needing to here, but maybe this will embolden you in your lives. Anti-Semitism is just flat out wrong. And when you use the Bible to justify it because you take teachings on the Pharisees and think that gives you the right to say things about humans, then you misunderstand what the Bible is and you misunderstand who God is and how he feels about them. For too long, Christian scholars, writers, and pastors have played nice with anti-Semitism because it makes for really good points in our sermons instead of doing the harder work of fleshing out what's happening in these passages. We have to be better. I have to be better. I thank God that I understand a little bit more today. Christ deeply 
loved the Pharisees. Christ deeply loved his Jewish kinfolk, and he deeply loves us. And any way that we speak about people or speak about Jesus that violates that first thing, that God loves them, then we're misunderstanding God, and we're misunderstanding what it means to be made in the image of God. May our speech, as we talk about Israel, be seasoned with the great love of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And for, at times, the stories of Jesus, they are hard to understand, Lord. They are. But help us to be thoughtful. Help us to be clear. And help us never violate the way that you feel about humans made in your image. Teach us to love. Teach us to be loving. Teach us to be bold, to correct anti-Semitic thought and speech. But above all else, teach us to be like your son. Help us to long to gather those people who are far from you. Let us not be scandalized by your mercy, but let us bathe in it and rejoice in it and celebrate it. For wherever it goes, it's a reminder that that same mercy is what saved us. Thank you that your mercy is big enough for that. Bless my friends, Lord. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.